0: 586 BC. The people of God for almost a thousand years had been turning away from him again and again and again, and God wanting to keep them united and to keep them together as his people to keep them following him so that one day the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, would come into the world. 586 B.C., God allows the Babylonian empire to take over the region of Judah. The Babylonian army, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, destroys the city of Jerusalem, and the Walls around the city are destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and thousands of God's people are taken from the city of Jerusalem. They travel over 1,600 miles to Babylon. And there they waited and waited and waited for 70 years until finally, after 70 years, God was faithful to his promise that one day they would return, and God allowed the Persian Empire, and my technology is not working as smoothly as I would like, but the Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great took over the Babylonian Empire, and God moved Cyrus's heart to release his people from exile, from captivity. And so thousands of them traveled from Babylon, 1,600 miles back home to Jerusalem. They were led by a man named Zerubbabel, which we heard about several weeks ago, who worked to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, the second temple. There was also a man named Ezra who wasn't so much building physical things in Jerusalem, but he was rebuilding the people of God, having them focused again on his word and on his truth. The people of God were back in Jerusalem, they had returned home, and now another period of about 70 years had passed, and we hear about another man named Nehemiah. Nehemiah was living in Susa, which was the capital of the Persian Empire, And he was, as the word of God tells us, the cup bearer to the king. And this isn't King Cyrus at this time, but this is King Artaxerxes, who's emperor over all of that Persian empire that you see there on the map on the screens. And for Nehemiah to be, quote, the cupbearer to the king, that was a position of great trust. He was essentially the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the world, the cupbearer. He was the one who would taste the wine and ensure that the wine wasn't poisoned, the food wasn't poisoned. That was the number one way that these emperors were gotten rid of in those days. And he had a life of luxury and a life of power and affluence and status there in the court of the Persian king, Artaxerxes, but when word came to him that his people, his fellow Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem, that still the walls of Jerusalem were not rebuilt after all of this time, he was heartbroken, Nehemiah. And as we saw last week, he prayed all the day. He prayed throughout the night, month after month after month. Finally, he went to the emperor, King Artaxerxes, and he said, I want to go back home to Jerusalem to my people to help them rebuild the walls. And Artaxerxes said yes, gave him men, gave him supplies. And so Nehemiah returned, and he began the work of rebuilding the walls of the temple in jerusalem now in 2007 a team of archaeologists in the city of jerusalem discovered what they believed to be a section of the walls that nehemiah himself had built rebuilt and they believed this to be nehemiah's walls nehemiah who traveled to jerusalem in 445 bc number one because they found pottery in that section of the wall that dated from the exact time of Nehemiah 445 BC and the pottery was from where guess where from Persia and perhaps even more gripping than that that the section of the wall that they found that you see circled If you compare it to the older section of the wall underneath you can see that that section that was believed to be built by Nehemiah was rather crudely built compared to the lower wall. In fact, the archaeologists who studied this, they said this was clearly built by people who were building this in haste, who were building these walls in a hurry, which again is exactly what we find in the Word of God in the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days. And isn't it wonderful that yet again another archaeological discovery which supports the truth of God's word and the story and the account that we find there? But our question is, why the haste? 52 days. I mean, Nehemiah, I mean, take some time. Why are you doing this so rapidly and so crudely compared to the other wall? Why the haste? Well, this is what we see in Nehemiah chapter four that Jerusalem was surrounded by the enemies of God's people. And again, I'll read that section to you. Nehemiah chapter 4, which says this, that when Sanballat, he was governor in Samaria, which was to the north, and Tobiah and the Arabs, the Arabs were towards the south, The Ammonites who were at the east and the Ashtadites who were on the west, when they heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. That we see that Jerusalem and the people of God were surrounded to the north, to the south, to the east, and to the west by these people that were opposing them, people who were hostile to them. What is the teaching here? What is God showing us? It's this. That whenever you do something good and you're striving to do something good for God, or for God's kingdom, expect opposition. Expect hostility. Uh, this is what Jesus himself teaches in what's called the Beatitudes. We love the Beatitudes. If you don't know the Beatitudes, you've heard them, even if, you didn't, you know, if you're newer to the church. Blessed are the meek Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure in heart. We love the Beatitudes, except the last Beatitude. No one likes this one. And Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you on my account. What's Jesus saying? He's saying that if you are a Christian and that people know that you're a Christian and you bear the name of Jesus and you are living for him and people know that and you're Following his word, he says, there will, to some degree, be persecution. Hostility. He says, revile you. Oppression. And you know, this used to be, when I was growing up, I mean, still today, it's nothing new used to come in this form that, that those who were the intellectual I'll say the intellectual elite if you believe the Bible and you believe what it said that Jesus died and rose and you believed in the supernatural and that there were miracles and you actually believed that stuff it meant you were just maybe a little bit intellectually inferior and to say it this way it's not a nice word you were just kind of stupid I mean, to believe in God and the supernatural and the miraculous, I mean, really to, I mean, if you need that psychological crutch, fine, but you're a little intellectually inferior. That was always the attack. But now there's another one. And it's that if you are a Christian and if you believe the Word of God to be true and that it's still true in the culture today, what the Word of God says about family or marriage, or what the Word of God says about when life begins, or what the Word of God says, Jesus Himself, who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, and that exclusive truth claim. And if you believe those things, you're not just intellectually inferior, you're morally inferior. You're bad. And it's labeled truly as hateful. And that's the pressure. I, who wants to be thought of as both stupid and bad? As intellectually and morally inferior. That, that is what we live under in our students. And this is in we are surrounded... It is in governmental institutions. It is in entertainment in media institutions, now in corporate institutions, in the educational institutions. intellectually, despite all the evidence that there is a God, or the archaeological evidence that supports the truth of the Bible, all the thousands of eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all written within the lifetime of the people who are eyewitnesses of those events, and to say that you are bad or morally in fear or hateful people from a culture that has no absolute basis for right or wrong, it's all based on feeling that can change every, what, six months? And, you know, I think that's obvious, so being surrounded. For Nehemiah, it was very clear. I mean, there literally were armies around Jerusalem. They could see, and, and they were, the people of God were continually told, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. They could see the armies. I think for us, maybe part of our problem is we're not afraid enough because there's something even deeper happening not just the external. There's something deeper. There is army that surrounds us, forces that are around us that we cannot see. That there is a battle raging all around us for you, for your soul, forces that want to take you away from Jesus and to rob you of your faith. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 6. It's a section right before he talks about putting on the full armor of God, if you're familiar with that section, and he says this. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I mean, Paul literally was beaten how many times and ended up was beheaded in the city of Rome He was battling against flesh and blood, but he says it's something deeper than that. We don't wrestle simply against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, that's a lot, and I know some people, it's hard to believe in spiritual forces of evil. Most people believe in spiritual forces of good, angels, or God. If you can believe in angels and God, can, can you not believe in the opposite, that there's evil versions of that, the spiritual forces of evil, that there are forces of evil that want to take you away from Jesus. And most, on an average Wednesday, are you thinking about the spiritual forces of evil? that are try- we, don't, we just sort of are blissfully unaware. This is what we call spiritual warfare, spiritual attacks. It can come in the form of that, a pr- that, 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 that pressure to conform and give in because we don't want to be stupid and we don't want to be bad people. It can come in the form of psychological type of attacks where it's depression and anxiety. It can come in the form of physical attack and a diagnosis or health problems that wear you down. And really the attack there is for you to stop believing that God really does. I mean, how can God? God, do you hear me? Do you still love me? That's spiritual warfare. Or, of course, in temptation, temptation give in, give out. It's going to be so much fun. It's going to be so joyful. And once you give in, then the real attack is to try to shame you and believe you that God can't love you or God can never forgive you. The devil calls you by your sin. God calls you by your name and calls you his child. Or it can be just spiritual apathy. We can just get into routines. You know, there's probably, I mean, what a fairly full room we have here today, but there's probably about a fourth of our congregation who still have not returned to church. And, and, and many of them for good reasons. They, they can't come or they shouldn't come and medically they shouldn't be here and, and understand that completely. But for many of our congregation, our brothers and sisters, it's because they developed a different routine and a different rhythm and hey, sleeping in on a Sunday is pretty good, And having my weekend is pretty nice, and they just slipped into that, and that scares me as their pastor. So what do we do? And I understand if people are new to Christianity, they're just just like, whoa, this is a lot to take in today. I realize that. What do we do? What's a framework? for living or for understanding. Well, we see that in Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 4. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's so practical. I hope you see how practical it is. Nehemiah chapter 4. I'm going to go back and read to you again that section that I read to you, but I've added uh, the, the last verse. It says, When Sanballat, who's governor in the north, Tobiah and the Arabs to the south, the Ammonites to the east, the Ashdodites to the west, When they heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all joined together, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And so it says, verse 9, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. You see those two things two things which really seem very diametrically opposed to one another. It says, again, that they prayed to their God. We prayed to our God, and we set a guard. I mean, come on, Nehemiah, don't you have faith? Don't you believe in God? I mean, you pray into God, you believe in God, God is sovereign, God is... Why why you gotta set a guard? Don't you believe in God? Don't you have enough faith to know he's gonna take care of you? We can sometimes think that way. But here, why do we pray to God? Why are they praying? They're praying to God because God is sovereign, because God is almighty, because God is in control, because God has a plan, that God is working through all things. God is king of kings and lord of lords. He has it all in his hands. at the same time, they set the guard. They did something very practical. And we see this in several places. Verse 9 again, we prayed to our guard and set a prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against him day and night. Then verse 14, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight. For your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Look, remember that the Lord is great and awesome. He has this 100%. By the way, fight. And verse 20. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there, our God will fight for us. In other words, there was a trumpeter who was there and he was watching with Nehemiah and if they saw any army start to attack, he would go to the place of the wall where they were being attacked and he would, and he'd play the trumpet and then all the people were to go to where the sound of the trumpet was and they were to fight, fight, fight. But then Nehemiah reminds them, hey, our God is fighting for us. What does all this mean? It means on the one hand, Your life matters, what you do matters. Reading the word of God matters, coming to church matters, receiving Holy Communion matters, remembering that you are a baptized child of God and bringing your little ones into God's grace matters. Your prayers matter. Your prayers are powerful and effective, says the Word of God. It all matters. Work, work, fight, strive, strive, struggle every day. But God is sovereign. God fights for you. God has it all in His hands. Fight, fight, struggle, read, pray, come to church, holy communion, fight, struggle every day. But then, and look, I don't want to confuse you with overly theological terms, but it means God is king, He's got it, He's fighting for you. It means you can chillax. <laughs> right, let me explain. That's relax and the word chill combined, in case you don't. And it was a great word 22 years ago chillax. It means to rest in his sovereign arms of grace. He has you. He has you. He fights for you. And how does he fight for you? How does God fight for you? Maybe in ways that you can never even understand. We see this in Nehemiah himself. Remember Nehemiah? Who was Nehemiah? He was the cupbearer to the king, the most powerful man in the world, Artaxerxes. He was his right-hand man, and he had affluence and status and wealth and power and luxury, and Nehemiah left all of that. Could you? He left all of that to go to Jerusalem to be... Build these walls. And look at what it says in the very last few verses of chapter 4. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, I said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. In other words, they are standing guard by night and they're laboring by day from the time that the sun rises until the stars came out in the evenings every single day for 52 days. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah wasn't in the construction trailer with the air conditioner running, okay? He he was like, oh, God, you guys are doing real good. No, he was with, he said, so neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me from Persia, none of us even took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. They keep their weapon at their right hand. They're working with their left hand. He says, we didn't even have time to take off our clothes, to bathe, to take care of ourselves. Nehemiah is, ha- I mean, just imagine the splendor of his robes and how luxurious he was and how, how, how just wealthy he was. And now he is grimy and dirty and sweaty. 52 days of arduous work. Do you see how much Nehemiah loved the people of God and all that he sacrificed. And Nehemiah, you see, is just a shadow of the truer and greater Nehemiah that was to come. The one who was to come, who wasn't just the cupbearer to the king, who was the son of God who didn't just leave earthly palaces and earthly luxury, but left heavenly glory to come into this world because he loves you, loves us so much. He became one of us and didn't just have his nice robes become filthy and dirty. Rather, he took on the stain of and the shame of your brokenness and your sin on himself and suffered and died in your place. Because God loves you. Jesus loves you that much. And rose victorious, just as Nehemiah was victorious. Jesus was victorious. And remember what Jesus says in our gospel reading from Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this. On this rock, what's the rock? It was the truth, the proclamation that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, crucified and risen for you. On this rock, this good news, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the rock of the gospel, of the good news, of the love of God in Jesus Christ for you never be taken away from you. And he fights for you. Now one last thing. I'll just say it. We cannot, you cannot do this on your own. We have to do it together. We see this again in Nehemiah, I thought there was laughter. (laughs) Chapter 10, it says, In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the... Oh, let me just... The people of God are weary. They're afraid. They want to give up. Again, verse 10. In Judah it was said, The strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemy said... They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. There's psychological warfare. The people are afraid. They're weary. They want to give up. And so verse 13, it says, So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I station the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. What's Nehemiah doing? What is by their clans? What were the clans? This was their extended families. So that they're building together shoulder by shoulder. And if they have to fight, they're fighting together shoulder by shoulder. And they're supporting one another and they're loving one another. Nehemiah knew they needed one another and so do we. so when you don't want to come to church or be in a missional community or go to Bible study or whatever when you don't want to come to church you don't want to be you're like you know what I'm good I can watch it on the live stream later and the live stream is good it's there for people who need it but you know I'll, I, I, I'll watch it later I, I can just relax chillax Pastor Abel taught me that word <laughs> when you don't want to you don't need to come to church okay fine If you don't think you need to come to church, fine. Don't come to church for you then. Come to church for your brother and your sister. We need to be together. Why do we love Easter? Why do we love Christmas Eve? New director of worship and all the beautiful music and all that aside, why do we really love Christmas Eve and Easter? Because a church is full of what? Church is full of people. And it's so encouraging and uplifting. We need to be together. To be family. Shoulder to shoulder and face to face. Hand in hand. I love you crazy bunch of people. There is opposition, there is pressure, there is, if you can believe it, supernatural forces of evil. There is so much bad news in the world today, but we have good news, and his name is Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for you, and on that rock, the gates of hell will not, cannot prevail. To him be all the glory. Amen.